quick announcement about my live stream tonight. It is Thursday, 8, 7 central. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about types of family annihilators. It's a topic people have been interested in. This will be this week and next week because it is more information than I can fit into one live stream. So this week and next week, the live streams will cover types of family annihilators. You can watch the live stream at any time. I leave them up on Get Vocal. You can go to the Crime Lines Facebook page. They're there too. I don't remove them. I don't take them down. And they're totally free. If you want the audio-only version of the case presentation portion where I remove the chit-chat and me saying hi to people as they enter the live stream and me reading other people's comments, I do offer that as a Patreon and Himalaya Plus perk, and you can get those on Friday on Patreon or obviously Himalaya Plus. But like I said, you can watch it in its entirety for free at any time on my Facebook page or my Get Vocal page. But I would really love if you joined me live so that you could participate in the conversation. So again, it's 8, 7 central this Thursday and next for a two-part live stream covering family annihilators. And if you can't make these live streams, I do live stream almost every Thursday. If I take a week off, I announce it on social media and I am still working to find a time where I can occasionally go live during more European and African-friendly hours. So I will announce those on social media, but I will also announce them ahead of time on the show. With that out of the way, on with this week's episode. In January 1997, Sarah Lee Davies' parents dropped her off with a friend in Broome, Western Australia. She went out to the bar where she was seen leaving with a man named Richard Durrow. When her family didn't hear from her again, they called the police. Richard was dropped as a suspect early on when there were a few credible sightings of Sarah after this night. But after a series of events no one could have predicted, Richard rose back to the top of the suspect list. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to Crime Lines and our third Thursday series. Every third Thursday of the month in 2020, I am covering another case of a missing or murdered Indigenous woman. The researcher I've been working with on this project, Annie, and I are working on a way to bring some lesser-known U.S. cases together into a few cohesive episodes. It's a tricky situation when you are already working in an area where there just isn't enough information and coverage, and then it seems like the same cases are getting attention, whereas other families are struggling to get more than a blurb in their local newspaper. Our intention with this project was always to educate on issues and history while also getting exposure to cases. To meet that goal, you can expect some upcoming episodes to cover multiple cases in a half an hour rather than just one or two longer cases. 
But this month, we're going to travel back to Australia to cover a case there. Another thing that I had hoped to do this year was to show that the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is not a Canadian problem, even though they're the ones talking about it. It's not a North American problem. This is an issue that is touching all colonized lands. So today we're going to talk about Sarah Lee Davy. The main source for this episode is a coronial inquest that was held many, many years after her disappearance. It is a public record that is freely available online, and I will link it with my other sources on my website. Sarah was born to Irene and Dennis Davy in June of 1975. She was the youngest of their six children. She grew up in One Arm Point, which is in the Kimberley region of Western Australia. This area is the designated land of the Bardi-Jawi people. Sarah went to school in Derby, which is the nearest main city area, until she was 15. Then she went down to Perth to attend school there and just have more of a city experience. But Sarah came back when the winter hit. She just could not stand the cold. As someone who grew up in Connecticut and went to college in Idaho and now lives in Kansas City, the perspective that Perth has cold winters is kind of funny to me. But if you come from somewhere that is normally 25 degrees Celsius in the dead of winter, Perth's 15 degree highs might seem cold. Not to me, but you can see, relatively speaking, it would seem cold. So Sarah moved back to One Arm Point. Back at home, Sarah got pregnant young, and at just 17 years old, she had a baby boy. However, it was a very rough pregnancy, and he was born seven weeks prematurely. He only survived for three weeks after his birth, and he died in October 1992. After this loss, Sarah fell into a depression. It took several months for Sarah to become her usual self again. But in 1994, when she was 18, she began spending her time in Derby and Broome, where there were just more opportunities to go out and socialize and be a young person. She frequented a few bars there and really just formed a social circle. Sarah also, of course, dated a few people, and then she began a more serious relationship with a man named Stuart Maru. Sarah had actually met Stuart in high school, but it wasn't until they were out of school that they started dating. The relationship was marked by domestic violence, and in 1996, Stuart broke Sarah's jaw in an assault. He was arrested and sent to prison for this, Though Sarah wanted to get back together when he got out. She even visited him while he was incarcerated. Her family, as you can imagine, did not approve, and she was living with them at the time. So she told friends that she was going to move out and live with Stuart whenever he was released from prison. Sarah told one friend that she would tell her where she and Stuart ended up, but she did not want her family to know. It was a tough position to be in because Sarah was close to her family, but it sounds like 
she felt they were interfering in her relationship, which, to be fair, they probably were. They didn't want her to be with a violent partner who went to prison for assaulting her. This dynamic led Sarah to be more secretive with her family than she normally would be. But while Stuart was still locked up, 21-year-old Sarah went on a road trip with her family on January 13th, 1997. The family stopped in Broome on the way to their final destination, and while there, they bumped into a family friend named Margaret. Sarah made a comment about being annoyed at the three kids who were also on the road trip, and it was suggested that she just stay in Broome with Margaret. Her parents would pick her up when they came back through on the way home. It seemed like the perfect solution. So Sarah dropped her stuff off at Margaret's house, and then the two went out to a hotel bar. At some point, they were joined by another friend named Michael. At 10 p.m., they went to Margaret's house again to change their clothes before they headed out to another bar. When they arrived at the second bar, though, Margaret was turned away at the door for unspecified reasons. She went home in a cab while Michael and Sarah went in. Then Michael and Sarah decided to go to a third bar called the Nippon Inn which is a great name for a bar. Michael did not have an ID proving his age, so they wouldn't let him in. Sarah decided to still go on in by herself. And like a lot of young people and a lot of not-so-young people, she did drink somewhat heavily this night. At the bar, Sarah met a 19-year-old named Richard Durrow, who was in the Australian Navy. He was out with a number of other crewmen. Around 2.30 in the morning, Sarah left the bar with Richard. She saw a friend of hers who joined the pair as they walked to a taxi stand. The friend noticed that Sarah was drunk. Sarah and Richard got into the cab. That took them to where Richard's ship was docked. Richard got out of the cab alone and walked up to Dean Frazier, who was the sailor on watch. He told Dean that he had a girl that he wanted to bring onto the ship. Dean noted that Richard was very drunk, and he of course refused to let him bring someone on the boat. Richard basically said, fine, he was just going to go to the end of the wharf and have sex with this woman that he had picked up. He went back to the taxi and helped a woman out of the car. She matched Sarah's description, according to Dean. The two walked down the wharf, and there was a shed that blocked Dean's view. So as they turned around that shed, he could no longer see them. About 30 minutes later, Richard came back to the boat alone. He complained to Dean that the woman would not have sex with him, and she left. Dean noticed that Richard had scratches on his face, scratches that had not been there when he first came up to the ship. What Dean did not notice here is also important. He did not see anyone 
leave the area. He didn't see anyone get into a taxi and drive off. And he had a clear view of that entire area. He only had Richard's word that the woman left. Later that week, when Sarah's parents returned to Broome to pick her up, they learned she had never made it back to Margaret's house on the first night. Her stuff was there minus one handbag, so they immediately reported her missing. The investigation started very soon after she was reported missing, but there was some initial confusion. As improbable as it may seem, another woman with a very similar name also went missing at the same time. This woman was found on January 23rd, and that exposed and cleared up that the cases were getting confused. So for the next two weeks, the police talked to multiple people who had claimed to see Sarah in Broome at various points, and several of them had seen her after that night out at the bar that ended at the wharf. One friend said he talked to her on the 15th. Two friends said they saw her on the 16th, so that's two days later. One friend was in a car and waved to her as she passed. Another saw her in a bar and was very sure of the date since it was her son's birthday. But the most notable sighting that happened after the wharf is the one that set the timeline for the disappearance. On January 28th, a teen girl named Amanda gave the police her statement. She lived at Margaret's house at the time and said Sarah came to pick up one of her handbags and then left with the bag around 5 p.m. She was seen getting into a four-wheel drive-style car like a Land Cruiser. This sighting happened on January 14th, so that would have been several hours after Sarah was at the wharf, and it is still listed as the last confirmed sighting of Sarah in many places. We will get back to this later, but let's stick with our investigative timeline for now. On February 4th, Dean, the guard who was outside the boat, told the police what he saw and mentioned specifically that he did not see Sarah leave the wharf in spite of having a clear view of everywhere except behind the shed. At some point in here, Richard was also spoken with, of course. He was actually in Darwin at this point, so the Northern Territory Police had someone reach out to him. Richard claimed that Sarah had not come back to the wharf with him at all. He said he went back alone. When he got there, he hung outside for about 30 minutes before he got back on the boat, and he also said that Dean could vouch for him. But Dean didn't vouch for him. He actually contradicted Richard. But there were numerous sightings of Sarah after those early morning hours at the wharf. So at this point, this encounter with Richard seems to just be a point on the timeline and not necessarily a key location or event. 
And that's even after a fisherman at the wharf that night named David Jones came forward. In mid-February, he told the police that he saw two taxis arrive between the hours of midnight and 3 a.m. About 20 minutes after the taxis left, he heard a woman yell, what the F are you doing? And get off of me. Then there was a scream and silence. There was some back and forth in his statements about whether or not he heard a splash. This statement fits with Dean's. Dean said Richard and the woman disappeared behind the shed for about 30 minutes, and it was 20 minutes in that the scream and maybe splash were heard. But then we go back to all of these people who knew Sarah, who believed they had seen her after this point. And one of them even said she came to Margaret's house and picked up a bag before leaving again, which seemed to be such a solid sighting. The investigation was already in danger of stalling out. So two and a half months after Sarah was reported missing in early April, a detective senior sergeant named Neville Collard was brought in to assist. The investigators were hearing a lot of second, third, fourth-hand rumors coming in, and they knew they needed to get people to open up a little bit more. Senior Sergeant Collard is an Aboriginal man, and it was, frankly, easier for the community to trust him and give him first-hand information. The investigative team did a public awareness campaign in the Indigenous communities in the area with the hopes that tips would come in that would be more than just rumors. But the tips didn't come in. Between the lack of information and the information they did get from their investigation, it was concluded that the answer to what happened to Sarah Davey did not lie with the Aboriginal community in Broome. Colored later explained that within Aboriginal communities, information spreads quickly. If an Indigenous young woman is missing and it's in the media, everyone's talking about it. And when the law enforcement person they had to speak with was a Noongar man and not a white officer, a major barrier to coming forward was removed. So if there was information to be gathered, they would have heard something. No tips came in, and that led them to discount that anyone in the community was involved. At least a hint of a rumor would have come out if they were. So Senior Sergeant Collard backed up and started looking at the wharf again. He found the taxi driver who dropped Sarah off at the Navy boat with this man. The driver told him that he waited nearby to bring Sarah back to town, but after an hour, he left without her. When Colored left the investigation, he concluded that whatever happened to Sarah happened at the wharf. Now, there is a little conflict on whether the cab waited or not, because when the driver was re-interviewed a year and a half later, he didn't remember waiting. So three months later, he did remember waiting, and 18 months later, he couldn't remember. 
and that sounds pretty typical with memories and something cold case detectives deal with daily. That's why the early investigation is so, so important to get as many witness statements down. So even if the case does go cold, the information is there for future investigations. One of the most prolific serial killers in America roamed free for decades, preying on victims often overlooked by society and law enforcement. From the Fall Line, a true crime podcast from Exactly Right, comes an immersive four-part series that shines a light on the southeastern victims of Samuel Little and why he got away with killing for so long. So if you start with yesterday's episode, September 16th, you can listen to The Fall Line every Wednesday, and it is going to take you through the story of Samuel Little. They're using investigator and family interviews, background information on every Southeastern victim, and then add in FBI confession videos. You are going to get a deep dive into one of the most overlooked people in any serial killer coverage, the victims. You're even going to hear some recently unearthed interrogation tape from a teenager who traveled with the killer. There are unmatched confessions and unidentified victims whose cases still need resolution, and there's someone out there who can help. The Fall Line is absolutely one of my favorite podcasts. I recommend it on social media all the time, and I'm really excited about this new series they're doing. Listen to The Fall Line, The Victims of Samuel Little, starting on September 16th. You can listen and subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So after all of this, in late April 2014, investigators did talk to Richard Duro again. This time, Richard admitted that Sarah did go back to the wharf with him. Richard said they just walked along the wharf and were talking. At some point, Richard said goodnight, and he left. Sarah apparently knew a fisherman who was at the wharf, and so Richard thought maybe she went to talk to him. He admitted that he did not see Sarah leave the wharf, and he also admitted that he had a scratch on his face, but he said he went to bed, and he woke up with it, and he wasn't sure how he got it. This definitely seems suspicious. He first lies about it, then he has this improbable story of a mystery scratch. But again, we have the sightings of Sarah after this point. And not just random people who saw a missing poster. Most of the people who came forward were people who knew her. So Richard being at the wharf with her, even if he lied at first, again, is just a point in the timeline of the night. At the very least, Sarah picked up her bag from Margaret's house something like 15 hours after Richard was with her, and then there is no indication that the two met up again the next night. The last sighting of Sarah, and arguably the most unusual, was in late February or early March in Darwin. Darwin is a 19-hour drive from Broome. There's no proof Sarah got on a flight, so if she went to Darwin, she would have driven there. The statement is rather sensitive, so I will just use the woman's first name, Bernadette. 
Bernadette came forward in April and provided a signed statement that she had seen Sarah with a man named Gavin Cooper. Bernadette had gone under hypnosis to try to get more information about this, and the story that came out was pretty awful. Bernadette said that she was with Sarah and Gavin somewhere when Gavin pushed Sarah down, and then he raped Bernadette. Though the police took this statement, it does not seem to have influenced the investigation very much because there was really nothing to back up that Sarah had ever made it as far away as Darwin. And after this point, by early May 1997, the investigation really seemed to drop off and they had found no trace of Sarah. So here they were, three or four months out from when Sarah was last seen, and there was no evidence of foul play, and there was no evidence she was staying away voluntarily either. Sarah's bank account had not been touched. On January 14, 1997, her Social Security payment was deposited. Historically, she would spend that money pretty quickly within a few days. But this time, it just sat there, completely untouched. Sarah never sought medical care, housing assistance, or applied for a passport to leave the country. She never applied for any other type of government benefits. She never got a job. And when her boyfriend, Stuart, got out of prison, she never showed up to run off with him as planned. So as the police are moving on to other investigations and the world seems to be getting on with life, Sarah Davies' family was stuck in that limbo of not knowing what happened to her and, of course, fearing the absolute worst. Over the next several years, they didn't feel like movement was happening in the case and they didn't feel like they were being kept informed about what the investigators were even doing. It was in 2006 that the case did briefly come back into the media, so this is nine years later. This was after Bradley Murdoch was convicted for killing Peter Falconio. I did cover that case back in February 2020. Investigators were looking into other possible cases Murdoch could have been involved in, and he did live in Broome at the time Sarah went missing. In an article in the newspaper The Age that talked about the possible Murdoch link, Senior Sergeant Neville Collard, who was retired at this point, openly criticized the original investigation. He said the police in Western Australia did not give him and others on the case the resources they needed at the time to do a full investigation. He told the paper that a lot of Aboriginal disappearances and deaths were just put in what he called the too-hard basket. They were too hard to investigate, they were too hard to solve, so they just did not get the same resources allocated to them. But as for the possibility of Bradley Murdoch being responsible for Sarah's disappearance, From this article and others I read, it seems that it was mostly based on the crimes he was accused of in other cases, geographic proximity, and his overt and violent racism. 
If we can all recall from the Falconio episode, Murdoch had been accused of rape, he was convicted of murder, and when he had moved to Broome, he had just gotten out of prison. He was there following an incident where he shot blindly into a group of indigenous Australians. It is a miracle he did not hit anyone. Murdoch even has a tattoo of the KKK lynching a black man. This is permanently tattooed on his body. So he is a violent racist in the area where Sarah was when she disappeared. This lead did not seem to go much farther than that. Murdoch maintains his innocence in everything, even the Falconio murder, and there's just really nothing to link him to Sarah. The case hit the news again in 2009 with another arrest. This time, it was the arrest of sailor Richard Duro, and he was arrested for murder. Now, this is one of the times we have to back up before we can move forward. Richard was arrested in 2009, but this murder happened back in November 1998 in New South Wales. This was a year and a half after Sarah disappeared and completely on the other side of the country. The body of 29-year-old Rachel Campbell was found naked, wrapped in blankets, and stabbed in a church parking lot in a suburb of Sydney. The parking lot was just the dumping ground. She had been killed elsewhere. The cause of death was four stab wounds to the neck, though she had also been strangled and had bite marks on her body. Rachel was a sex worker who was working the night before, so it was assumed a client had killed her. The investigation went cold until 2008, when cold case detectives decided to take another look at it. Semen had been recovered at the scene, so they ran the DNA against the national database that had been established after Rachel's murder, and they got a hit it came back to Richard Duro. His DNA was in the database because of an arrest in 2000. While he was living in yet another part of Australia, he was in Queensland this time, Richard deliberately ran over a pedestrian. The victim survived, and Richard was charged with attempted murder. He was convicted on a lesser charge, so he was sentenced to just five years in jail with a one-year non-parole period. But when he was paroled a year later, he was required to submit DNA into this shiny new database. It seems like so much of solving crimes is luck, either on the investigator side or the criminal side, and in this case, it was definitely not on Richard's side. Had he run someone over a couple of years before he did, he never would have landed in that database and would not have been arrested for Rachel's murder. The investigation did show that in 1998, Richard was living near the church where Rachel's body was found. By the time he was arrested, 11 years later, 32-year-old Richard was back in Western Australia, at the time living in Perth. 
he was arrested and extradited back to New South Wales. The DNA evidence was the most compelling part of this case, so Richard's defense decided to admit to that much of the Crown's case. But to them, it was just proof that Richard had sex with Rachel the night of her death. But it was consensual sex, and he left her alive and well after this. His attorneys proposed her estranged boyfriend as an alternative suspect. And the jury found there was enough reasonable doubt here. Richard was found not guilty in 2010, and he returned to Perth. In 2012, the Sydney police announced that they had some new evidence. They believed an orange Volkswagen van may have been used to dump Rachel's body. So they were asking the public to come forward if they knew anything. So at least we know they didn't stop investigating with the not guilty verdict. They were still looking for Rachel's killer, and if it was Richard, they wanted more proof of it. If they could find that, if they had compelling evidence, they could have another bite at that apple. New South Wales has limited double jeopardy laws. If a case is serious enough that a life sentence is possible and this compelling new evidence is found, they can retry someone after a not guilty verdict. But without any of that evidence, Richard was back in Western Australia. He started a family with his partner, Joy. And at some point in late 2013, early 2014, the family started taking lessons with the Jehovah's Witnesses after a missionary had knocked on their door. Richard was more engaged in the lessons and the Bible study than Joy was, but they were on the path together. It's vague in the reporting if they actually joined the church. In the Jehovah's Witness church, you are required to learn about the church and their beliefs before you join the church through baptism. And this can take several months. It's not clear how far Richard and Joy got into the process, but it is important to note that Richard was at the very least actively working towards this full conversion in the first half of 2014. Then on August 9th, 2014, Richard went to an indoor shooting range and he rented a booth. The way these ranges are set up is that the gun is attached to the walls by wires that come out either side. The gun cannot be removed from the booth, and it can only be pointed forward in the direction of the target. But Richard had wire cutters with him. He freed the gun and turned it on himself. He died at the scene. Several days later, a package showed up addressed to his partner, Joy. It included Richard's laptop, his cell phone, and a notebook that outlined his plans to take his life and had a note. The important part of the note, for our purposes, is that he wrote, quote, 
I did kill three times. It's the hardest thing to live with while trying to become a witness. End quote. Part of the process of becoming a Jehovah's Witness includes repenting for past sins. It seems like Richard couldn't overcome his guilt over taking three lives, or he didn't feel there was a path to repentance. The three victims, however, were not named in this note. It is assumed two are Rachel Campbell and Sarah Davey, but the third is unknown, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. Let's talk a little bit about Richard Duro first. He was born in March 1977, and he grew up experiencing childhood abuse. That is not disputed. The abuse was physical, mental, and sexual. He joined the Navy a few months ahead of his 18th birthday. Reports were that he was a very good sailor at first, but after that first year, his performance went downhill due to his drug and alcohol abuse. Richard had very few friends in the Navy because he was unreliable, and he had a reputation as a compulsive liar. In the months before Sarah's disappearance, Richard was requiring constant supervision at work because of how poor his work performance was. Then, shortly after Sarah's disappearance, as we know, Richard went to Darwin. While he was there, he was relieved from duty, and he was sent to a psychologist for an assessment before he was allowed to go back to work. The assessment did not go in his favor, if the goal was to prove mental fitness. The report indicated that Richard had a serious psychological condition, and he scored high on amorality. Amoral is different from immoral. Immoral is an acknowledgement something is right or wrong and doing wrong anyway. Amoral is an indifference towards right and wrong. In the evaluation, it was determined that Richard viewed other people as opportunistic and selfish, so he felt it was fine if he acted that way as well. He showed antisocial attitudes, which I think my last sentence already established, and he was also prone to angry outbursts. We definitely see an angry outburst in 2000 when Richard tried to run someone over. And in that case, he did use his previous childhood abuse and his anger issues when he argued for the lesser charge and the minimum sentence. Looking at Rachel Campbell's murder, it involved biting, strangulation, and stabbing, all things that may indicate rage. If we're looking at Sarah's disappearance, it appears there was a fight based on the scratches on Richard and the scream that the fishermen heard. So here we have a man with serious problems, and now a confession to three murders without him specifying which three murders. Obviously, investigators wanted to figure out if Sarah definitely was one of those. So five months after Richard's death, a cold case investigation into her disappearance began. 
A coronial inquest was held in 2016, which helped us learn the details of the investigation. And the first thing that stands out in this reinvestigation is that they went back over all of the witness statements and re-interviewed everyone they could. They really looked closely at those sightings of Sarah in the days after she was at the wharf. The story that Sarah was seen in Darwin months later was dismissed pretty quickly. The person who made the statement admitted she made it up. There were some things going on with her that were unrelated to Sarah that motivated her to say what she did. Another witness reconsidered his statement as well and said it was more likely he saw Sarah the day she arrived in Broome, not the day after. Then there was another witness who still remembered seeing her, but the other people she was with that day, they didn't remember seeing Sarah at all. And that's pretty much how all the witness reinterviews went. 18 years later, they can't say for sure when they saw her. It may have been the day before. One person had admitted he actually only met Sarah once before, so maybe it wasn't her that he had seen. But none of these sightings were as compelling as that one of Amanda, the 15-year-old who lived at Margaret's house, and said Sarah came back. It was the most specific sighting, and it could only have happened after the wharf. That is the only way this moment fits into the timeline. When Sarah was re-interviewed, she said that she would not have lied about it, but she was young. She was drinking alcohol at the time. And now as an adult looking back, she actually has no idea how she would have known the time or date Sarah came and picked up her purse. So part of me wonders if Amanda was confused. And what she really remembered was Sarah coming back with Margaret to change the night before. But then there's another part of me that wonders if someone had taken the purse or the contents of it. And to cover for that, Amanda said Sarah came back for it. And Amanda, being just 15, may not have even realized she was covering for something. She may have just been repeating what she was told but it was recorded as her having witnessed it herself. That might explain why she's so fuzzy on the details. Or maybe Amanda didn't really know Sarah very well and someone came in the house and picked up a purse and she assumed it was Sarah. I think the point is that there are possible explanations for the sighting being wrong. But like I said, this fact is still reported in a number of places. I think I saw it on the Doe Network that she was last seen at 5 o'clock on the 14th getting into a Land Cruiser-type vehicle. The findings of the new investigation just haven't gone out there for all of these places to be updated. Once we discount her going to get her purse which the coronial inquest did. The last confirmed sighting now is Sarah walking down the wharf and behind the shed with Richard, a man who has now admitted to killing three people. In the end, the coroner's report issued what almost feels like a split verdict, but, I mean, it really isn't. It makes sense when you think about it in pieces. The coroner ruled that Sarah's death had been established beyond all reasonable doubt. 
He ruled that Sarah had never left the wharf in those early morning hours of January 14th. He believed that a violent confrontation happened between Richard and Sarah that ended in a scream and Sarah went into the water. He further said there was a strong inference that could be drawn that Richard killed Sarah, threw her body into the water, and then the strong currents of the outgoing tide carried her body out to sea. That said, he could not find this for certain because it's possible that Richard and Sarah got into an argument and she fell off the wharf accidentally. She was intoxicated at the time, making an accidental fall not seem like a huge stretch. While it seemed likely Richard killed her, the standard of proof required to say that for sure just could not be met. But it is still largely believed by the public and the police and the podcaster talking to you right now that Sarah was Richard's first victim and Rachel Campbell was his second. So, who's the third? Investigators have tried to find out by looking for unsolved murders or missing persons reports in areas where he lived. And, well, that's been a bit tricky. From 1994 until his death in 2014, Richard lived in almost every state in Australia, as well as living in New Zealand. He moved at least 10 times in and out of the various states. And that does not count any travel. Crime Stoppers Australia has created a map with the dates of his various known residences, which will hopefully help narrow down the where, when, and most importantly, who of this third murder. I will post the map on social media along with a picture of Richard. If you have any information about the disappearance of Sarah Lee Davey or tips on Richard Duro, you can call the Western Australia Crime Stoppers at 1-800-333-000. This number will be in the show notes. 